Hey everybody, this uh, week we are talking about E.T. the Extraterrestrial, uh, a classic from 1982. We highly recommend you watch the film before listening. We are going to be going straight into spoiler territory. It is a relatively old film and a classic, so I don't know what you're doing if you haven't seen it. Mike, uh, what is E.T. about? Well, John, E.T. is a movie about a raisin alien or an old man in a raisin suit, I couldn't really figure it out, uh, that psychically manipulates and mind controls a child from a broken home so he can escape from government pursuit and get back to his home planet, where I'm assuming he's planning to initiate what can only be described as the alien invasion depicted in World of the Worlds. And it's a heartwarming film. I just want you to know, this movie is very important to me, and so I, I, I don't appreciate these hot takes, but... <laughs> All the same, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Welcome again to This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, so like I said, this week we are talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, if you don't know, which would be shocking, this was a 1982 film from Steven Spielberg. Uh, at that time, he was coming off an extremely hot 1970s run, starting with Jaws. Over a few years, he made some of the all-time classics, culminating with this movie, which on its release, became the highest-grossing film of all time up to that point. That is uh, unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable. It's actually one of the most insane runs I can think of in terms of directing, and he's not really done at this point. But we'll get to Spielberg more in a second. Just in terms of this film, uh, Mike, what is your relationship with this movie? Yeah, this is a, a fun movie. Uh, when you brought it up, I was actually really surprised that we would do it. Um, you know, my memories of this as a kid was this is like the ultimate summer VHS movie. Like, yeah, actually, yeah. this and Jaws, really, whenever we went to like a beach house or anything like that, you were going to find on their shelves the VHS of E.T. Um, so really, I remembered it as a kid's movie, honestly, because I was a sure. kid when I watched it. And when you brought it up, it was kind of funny because I was like, why are we watching a children's movie? Because um, I had not seen it since I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 13. Could I interrupt like, real quick? Yeah. That yeah. exact reaction I have gotten from multiple people who I mentioned. So over the last week, I've just pulled random people around me like, hey, what do you think of E.T.? And almost every single person has said some variation of, oh, that, I mean, I watched that when I was like a little kid, I, I think it was great. I don't know. So it lives in this weird place, I think in cultural consciousness, but anyways, your response has been very typical in my experience, uh, of a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so when this is the, again, for this podcast is the first time I had watched it in years and, uh, blown away by it, honestly, um, much deeper and richer, which we'll talk about, but yeah, so I think that summer vacation VHS is where it stands in my mind until this most recent rewatch. How about you? Um, I would say similar, except I think I I think part of why I at any point had the uh, sort of inspiration to go back to it 
was because this was one of the most profoundly affecting movies on me as a, as a kid. So I definitely have the what what I assume a lot of us who were raised in the in the nineties, um, like you ended up seeing this before you can even remember because, like you said, yeah. it was just it was obviously a hugely popular movie. It was uh, a kids movie, and so I think a lot of us when we were extremely young, you know, someone put this on at some point. Uh, so I, I, it's one of those movies that my, I saw it before I even really remember seeing it. I couldn't tell you the first time I saw it. It was just one of those movies that I've always known and always seen. Um, but it was a very, it, it definitely had a huge impact on me. And I think that's why at some point later, uh, I, I think, I think it was about last year, maybe two or three years ago. Uh, time is weird, but yeah. I think it was two or three years ago that I was on a Spielberg kick, probably around the time that I rewatched Jaws, yeah, which you War and I Horse, have talked right? about a lot. And War Horse, the, yeah, War Horse obviously trumps all yeah. because it it's is the pinnacle of filmmaking. Yeah, it's about a horse. What more do you want? So I saw War Horse and then I was like, <laughs> and then I was, no, I, 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 you know, you and I have talked about before that, like, I, I somehow uh, realized or I, I rewatched Jaws with the thinking of, hey, is this maybe one of the best movies ever made? And it is, FYI, but we'll get to that another time. But it did kind of start me on a Spielberg kick of like, okay, you know, let me really reevaluate this guy and really start digging into it. And that led me to E.T. because I had such a fond recollection of it. And I think kind of like what you're saying, I, I just rewatched it because I was I thought, OK, you know, when I was a kid, I love this. I'm sure it's still a good movie. He's obviously a great filmmaker. And I was immediately caught off guard by just how good the filmmaking is on a technical level. I think it's a superb movie. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's you know, I it's really a flex. That's that's the biggest thing I wrote down is every single like shot. He's doing these wild shot constructions and these sort of uncharacteristic way of looking at the scenery and, and framing suburban uh, California. But they all work. They yeah, all look yeah. immaculate. Yeah, um, there is there is a number of scenes that. I, I noticed really the third time I watched it. So I've actually watched it twice before we recorded this. And there's so many scenes in which they shoot. Uh, the, the lens takes us through a window before we see the character. Right. Or yeah, it's, yeah. or it's an open shot of a suburban neighborhood and then people walk onto it, but you don't actually see their faces. You'll just see like boots or the gear that they're the government sweeping things for. Yeah. Um, and in each of those shots is like, unbelievable because in a way without there being any actual evidence of like a pursuit or something lurking or something chasing the main characters the shot alone makes you feel that you know um, that there's someone watching or that there's a there's eyes that are all about trying to hunt down the the, the alien and obviously the kids so it's a, it's a technical masterpiece yeah. in some ways that i did not expect from coming back to it yeah i mean talking about the craft one of the things i came away with is is and along the lines of what you were just saying this really could work as a silent film which i actually Mm. think is the highest acclaim in terms of visual storytelling i can give to something 
Because if you going back to what that exact example you're talking about, just by the shot phrasing, you know, you're being communicated so much. It's the ultimate show. Don't tell, you yeah. know, that the, the government people with all of the equipment and the, and the, the key, the guy with the motif with the keys jangling, it's communicating things to you with the flower and ETs like, like, you know, life force or whatever, the way that the, the shot reverse shot of the kids responding to him and slowly uh, creating a relationship with him. There's so much you are being told, not through dialogue, uh, but through the composition of the film. It's just, I, yeah, it's, I was really, really astounded by the visual impact of, of the movie. Yeah. And I, and it's a, it's profound because obviously that's such a major theme of the film is the psychic connection that flourishes over the course of the film between ET and Elliot. But it's amazing. So it's amazing that so much of the movie is about the nonverbal, you know, connections that we end up forming with deep friendship or deep union um, and the way that we communicate when we actually don't know how to communicate or the way that feelings almost capture more of how we connect than any words or any language that we're going to, you know, bond over. Right. That's just such a yeah. big part. And it's kind of, I mean, I don't know. It, you almost want to assume that he didn't mean to do that because it captures it so <laughs> well on the physical level, that exact thing. I mean, yeah, the use of light uh, is a big one, right? Where, mm -hmm. um, man, if I could go through and just capture every snippet in which light guides you towards um, the crucial connecting point of the scene, right? Yeah. It captures on top of that exactly what, uh, he's trying to talk about in terms of theme, like whether it's yeah. wonder or curiosity or empathy, uh, healing, like all of these things he does non-verbally. And yeah, it, yeah it's just, it, it's so weird. It, it just is, it's a level of filmmaking that I knew Spielberg had in him, again, Jaws, but yeah. I don't think I would have associated with E.T. until I came back to it. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of, I'm, I'm stealing this quote and I should know where I'm stealing it from, but that's okay. Obama. Um, I'm, I'm stealing from Obama. Obama once said about film directors <laughs> that uh, every single shot communicates something. And the difference between a, a good director and a truly great director is how aware they are of that and how willing they are to put in the work to know and enforce what each shot is communicating. Mm. Because I think, you know, most people probably approaching film, at least, you know, again, if we're talking about that good, great director divide, I think a lot of good directors would think about a handful of scenes that is like, you know, I really want this shot in this moment to communicate this. But I think the astounding thing about Spielberg in, in this movie and, and in other movies like Jaws, but, you know, here is that there's such an awareness of the power of each shot. There's no wasted shot. In other yeah. words, every single, even the little interstitial things, there's so much thought put into them and into what they're doing and how they're having an impact on you, the viewer. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I'm totally there. I think I walked away just mind blown in terms of his effect and, and the, the force of his filmmaking, which actually leads me into my next question which is not really et related 
but I'm just kind of curious, what would you say is your relationship with uh, Spielberg? Because I have, I've ended up thinking about that a lot the last couple weeks, uh, to be honest with you. Yeah, he's a fascinating director. You know, I made the joke about Warhorse, um, which obviously... His best film. His best film, so I wouldn't actually yeah. joke about it. But no. But he has a, in my mind, he has a um, a natural bent to, to be shallow in my mind in some ways. Sure. Um, which is actually something that's more later in his career than it is when you go back to these movies. So I think he is kind of a tale of two careers in terms of his desire to be innovative and uh, really kind of up in genres and, and make fascinating work, at least from my perspective, you know, and there's obviously yeah. a blurred lines between those two halves. Um, Cause like I always think of things like minority report where minority Report is one of the most innovative sci-fi movies I've seen, but then he crams in a happy ending at the end and you start yeah. to see that movement of his, to give people what they want, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And a movie like this though, is, is what makes me remember that he is a master. You know, I think one of the things that came away from this, um, and you and I had talked about this a little off mic a while back is, uh, how many horror elements are in this movie. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, but what's fascinating about it is he builds up these horror elements in the most masterful ways and then upends them usually at the end of the scenes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's the kid walking out to the shed and there's that use of light and he has the flashlight and he's investigating the sound and it's like really tense, but then the alien is like this completely harmless looking, you know, little raisin of a dude Um, (laughs) or even like the government's arrival, right. Where there are these faceless, like terrifying figures. Um, And yet when it comes time for them to be unmasked, it's, they're not actually monstrous at all, right? Yeah. So he has this constant feeling of like this faceless, you know, dark stomping, it's disrupting, they're splashing, there's all these noise of terror, chasing, hunting, causing fear, you know, all this stuff. But then when it gets to the climax of these either specific scenes or these longer movements of the film, the horror like dissipates almost immediately, um, Yeah. which is amazing because it remind again it reminds you that he could have just made a horror film in fact it would have been a great one uh it would have been pretty amazing with a monster right or the government is like the bad guys and yet he chose to build a horror film that has no scares in so many ways it's just all heart um yeah and i don't know i could talk about that probably all day but it's it's something you don't see for many directors the ability to do that yeah i totally agree i think that it's it's interesting watching his different um, abilities, or, or I would say his different aesthetics, almost clash in movies like this. And clash is a disservice because he makes it work, mm. but he's pulling in so many weird, varied things. Like you said, it's a kids movie, but it's also a horror movie, kind yeah. of. Yeah. And and I think you even see that in a lot of his other work that he's there's an inventiveness to him. He's not necessarily, and it's weird too, because he's typified so many of these genres that sometimes it makes you forget how groundbreaking it was. Right. That yeah, it was like, yeah. I, you know, I'm even thinking of something like Indiana Jones, which has become a typified action adventure film, which unfortunately makes you not realize how much at the time it was the idea of making a movie that was that, kind of tone but fundamentally um took its in in a way took itself seriously but in a 
much deeper way didn't take itself seriously sure and was made with a lot of craft but also knew how to have fun i you know i think he just has so many great approaches to filmmaking uh which it which but to agree with you which does make the latter half of his career all the more perplexing i'm not necessarily willing to dive into that here just because i think it might be a better suit suited for a different conversation since this is still early career um but what i will do uh i'm gonna quote there's two different quotes that i think so hit me in terms of my relationship with with spielberg over the years um this first one i actually had trouble finding the quote itself so this is a paraphrase from what i remember from one of my favorite online film critics called Film Crit Hulk. I've told you about him a few times. Um, so this is just a paraphrase, but he said something to this effect. For a lot of us, Spielberg is our first experience with how magical and impactful film can be. Uh, but then we'll get older, we learn more, and we start appreciating and preferring filmmakers who have a more refined or nuanced style. At this stage, it's common to even look down on or criticize Spielberg's so-called heavy-handedness. But usually, those people will eventually come back around and realize just how difficult, just how rare it is for a director to be so effect or sorry, to so effectively communicate exactly the mood he wants to at every moment of the film. Mm. It's then that we realize just in how incredible of a filmmaker he was all along. Yeah, and that basically money. perfectly summarizes my relationship with him. That, you know, I think obviously as a kid, his movies have this huge impact on you, I think on a lot of us. And then as you start reading into films and you start getting into all these other directors who have a very understated style, which is definitely, it, it, I, there's almost like this hierarchy again, going back to that good and great directors thing where a lot of okay directors will be very heavy handed with what they're trying to do. And a lot of, you know, I I think that it can be more difficult to successfully be nuanced and kind of hide some of your intentions. If that makes sense. I'm thinking of people like Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who has like this sort of nuance to his films. It's not really clear and first viewing what's what, what he's trying to tell you, but there's a depth there and you can mine it. And I think at that moment, a lot of us will leave Spielberg behind because he, and he doesn't really operate that way, but we create a false dichotomy in our heads of, Oh, because he's not nuanced, there's no depth to it. And I think that's what happens later is we come back and realize He's not nuanced. And to be clear, he's not in terms of. Yeah, yeah. It is always very obvious what is happening and what is going on. But you come back and realize that that doesn't make him less effective of a filmmaker. Arguably, it's even it's almost like shooting the moon uh, to do that and make it work and have the impact he does is maybe even harder than the nuanced guys, if that makes sense. Um, I think, I think what makes it more impressive, I don't want to say it's harder than the nuance guys. Um, I think what makes it more impressive is actually just the, the length. And this actually gets the way of us appreciating him. It's just the length at which he has done it. You know, he's been making masterpieces for what, 40, 50 years. It's insane. Um, when you go back to the seventies to, to find 
you know, his, his, some of his best work, but, but when you really track his career, you know, there's, there's something that you just get tired of the person who's always been there before. It's like Michael Jordan on the bulls where people, you know, want to make someone else the MVP just cause he's done it so long. Yeah. Um, but so it's like voter fatigue almost, but it also, I think while it makes that really impressive that he still makes great movies, I also think it's what eventually where it wore me out on him is because yeah. he lacks nuance because it's so clear what he wants to hit. And he often hits the same themes in a lot of his movies kind of over and over and over again, when I'm watching, you know, 30, I don't know how many movies he's made as many movies as he's made. Um, it, you kind of just get what's coming. Right. And I think yeah. that wears me out. Um, because I, I do think what you need, if you are going to be that clear is innovation. You have to be yeah. doing something new. You have to be doing, even if it's a, a tired theme, even if it's a, a universal theme, even if it's just mm-hmm. something that's always going to be around in films and you're just going to hit it right in the bullseye as openly as possible, you better be doing something else in the film that makes it a movie worth making. You know, almost. Now, is, is, is that what you think? There, This is a presupposing question. Um, because in some senses, it feels like culturally we've we've kind of left him behind. Yeah. He's kept making. Yeah. He's still making movies, but I mean, the last movie that you know, I guess Lincoln was probably the last film that I remember being a significant part of the cultural conversation. And even then, it wasn't a huge part. No, it, was and it just, wasn't. It wasn't hugely innovative either. It's just no. a, a biography, right? So would you say? So so would you say that a lack of innovation maybe? is what has almost kind of caused him to drift in the last 20 years yeah. uh, in terms of public perception. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, let's just, you look at movies like war horse, Lincoln bridge of spies, BFG, the post, even ready player one. I could tell you what the themes of those movies are going to be before ever seeing them. Knowing sure. Spielberg's making them, knowing what the characters in them are. Um, and because of that, I think that they've, and those are all still largely successful movies, except for I think BFG was a bomb. Um, <laughs> but, but so they're still remembered. I think they've kind of fallen into that category of dad movies for the most part. If yeah. you don't want to be surprised by your films, if you don't want something that's going to challenge you, um, if you, if you don't want, a you know, a hard right turn or an open-ended uh, conclusion, Spielberg's your guy. And he has yeah. been for a while. I just think you're right on the larger cultural conversation. Um, we've been there, done that with him a little bit. And yeah. Um, so I think he has been left behind, which is a shame. Don't get me wrong. And those are all still good movies. Like, I think that's the funny part about yeah. this conversation. None of those are bad movies except for the BFG. I hate that movie. I was going to say, but we've both seen BFG, which is just horrifying. I don't to tell think people about. that. And that was an actually bad movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, we don't need to just straight that. up. It's trash, but, but yeah, so like, I do think he's been left behind and some of that's on him and some of that's, I don't know, some of that's also probably on us. I, I'm probably yeah. too jaded for some of his movies now. Um, doesn't mean they're you know, bad, but it's just not what know, I'm looking for. You said one thing that I, I really like and, and I latched onto, which is uh, by way of categorizing the divide of, you know, for lack of a better word, old Spielberg and new Spielberg. Um, you said that all of those movies from the past few years, you already kind of know what emotion he's going to strike going into it. If you yeah. think back to these, to this early career stuff, I don't think I would have had a clue 
what E.T. was going to do to oh, me. Oh, not at all. I didn't now. Going yeah. back to it. Revisiting. You've already yeah. seen it. And, you'd, and you're like, yeah. I didn't even know. And but and even like Jaws and and, jo- and Indiana Jones and all the way up through Jurassic Park and, and you know, even to an extent uh, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, which I think Saving Private Ryan was probably truly his last moment towering over the pop culture landscape. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um even, which even then is interesting because it's a different kind of pop culture dominance, but nonetheless, but also an innovative movie, wildly innovative. Also an Chang- innovative movie. No one had forever. ever yeah. framed war films like that. And yeah, I think you're right. I think there's this this part of it of you know how much is he playing again? How much is he changing how you would have viewed this subject or how you would have viewed this this topic or theme or or something like that? He doesn't seem as interested in that and part of me is like hey more power to him maybe that's a conscious decision you know uh i didn't make 25 years or 30 years worth of classics so (laughs) but yeah and he is always one of those we always have these directors where we get really hard on them uh and you almost always have to have like that button at the center of the table that you press because you forget to press it which is spielberg is one of the great master craftsmen of ever in cinema uh, so it's like, well, and and that was even the thing. The crazy thing I realized looking at looking into this movie was just the timeline is absurd. So this is 1982. Really, he's making an 81. Um, literally eight years before this movie, he was unknown. Yeah, and in that time period, in about six or seven years, he had become. What possibly the most towering figure in all of Hollywood history he had released with the possible exception of George Lucas, which I mean, so just think about that over seven years, he and George Lucas became responsible for uh, Jaws, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And by the way, Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. were uh, were one year apart. 1981 wow. Raiders, 1982 E.T. And you know, the way I was looking at it was there was a there's a universe where he had like this huge sexier run and then dropped off. And yeah. that's not yeah. even unexpected. I mean, there's tons of examples of people. No, who, I think the average is a director gets 10 years and yeah, you're going to forget about him, quite frankly. It just yeah. is what it is. And, and that would have been normal. But this yeah. we're not even he had almost more hits after this point than before it, which is just absurd to think about um three times by the way he made a movie which at that point was the highest grossing film of all time could you name all three uh war horse war yeah. horse and it's war all war horse. horse war horse broke the record three times that's Man, how good it was that's how many releases it had jesus Christ. <laughs> it was no, I can't guess. i'm, I'm no just idea. gonna answer it jaws <laughs> was the first one um which then got surpassed by star wars but jaws et and jurassic park wow yeah that's unbelievable Uh, it's yeah i don't know if there's any other oh james cameron but get out of here it's because he's the best director of the last 50 years i've always said it so moving on just kind of some other things in the film uh that surprised me I read this quote. I was reading an article. Um, there's this great AV Club uh, column called The Popcorn Champs. It's written by Tom Brehan. 
Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. He's going through uh, the top grossing films of every year, starting sometime in the 60s and just doing a write up on them. Uh, He has this great quote where he says, one of the things that I love about Spielberg's movies in this era, and I don't know why we forgot it, but the kids are kind of assholes to each other. Mm hmm. And he's like, that's how kids actually are, that they they do love each other, uh, but they out, but they're also kids. And so they curse and they give each other a hard time and they beat each other up. Um, what do you think of just the 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 kid actors in this movie and also kind of on a related note, just their relationships to each other? That was the reason I'm saying this is because that was one thing that blew me away. I feel and I agree with that article. I feel like we've lost it in the last, I don't know, 20 years or something that you know, there's something so believable about the kids and their relationships to each other. And that's especially important here because I buy their building relationship with ET. Uh, what, what do you, what do you got on that? Yeah, I think that the kids are an interesting part of the movie, obviously. Um, you know, it's gosh, it's funny because I think nowadays when you look at movies with a lot of of child actors they're almost always trying to go into extremes they're trying to be super clever um so it's not a movie but things like stranger things where their banter is constantly back and forth it's more elevated than any kid is actually going to talk about most of the time yeah um or they try to get very serious with it so it's going to be a kid you know florida project stuff like that where it's dark and it's gritty and you're getting a performance from a kid that you just wouldn't expect and um not really trying to be hard on either of those things. It is just interesting that neither of them feel very authentic. Um, Absolutely. To my experience, or I think many people's experience of like childhood, uh, which was a lot more awkward and a lot more um, rough on each other and a lot more no filter and constant bickering and prodding and talking over each other. And, and I think he captures that in a really interesting way. Yeah, I think the other powerful part of this movie when it comes to the kids, though, is is really the image of the broken home that is at mm-hmm. the center of it. You know, Elliot's family, where the dad is all we know, ran off as far as I can tell. There's a divorce. Uh, it is like absent. literally a ghost over the movie. Yeah, I think absolutely. The, the, the high in the running for impactful scene that I did not remember in the slightest from when I was a kid is when they're in the garage and they find their dad's sweater, I think. Mm-hmm. And they start reminiscing and they're like, do you remember he, he would take us to the games and he would get us popcorn or something. And, and they have this moment and they even end it with, no, we'll, he'll do it again. And it's such a profound sadness hanging over the movie in a profound absence. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I did not remember from a kid, but that doesn't mean I think it still had an impact on me as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's something that, I mean, yeah, it is. It's a ghost over the entire film, but it's also the driving force of the entire film. Like, yeah. you know, you could almost summarize this movie as kids left without adult supervision uh, because the parents <laughs> in this film, it's a single mother, but like these kids are left to do whatever the heck they want. Yeah. Um, essentially destroying like half a town and all this other stuff. Not a big um, deal. Yeah. And, you know, getting into run into the police and all that good stuff. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so like the, the ability of the, to go on these adventures and to, um, you know, skip school and all this stuff really comes down to like the absence of, of that parental figure that hangs over the film. Yeah. And then even more seriously, it's the, 
the constant theme of the movie of kids being left without guides and in a way that's you know traumatic kind of like you're saying you have this moment where they're just reminiscing over loss right the loss mm-hmm. of this guiding figure in their lives but at other times in a weird way as Spielberg often does there's a there's a positivity to it which is that they are left to engage the unknown without someone older telling them not to right yeah absolutely there's a there is a reality to this where if the mom knew the alien was there in the first hour the government's there immediately right yeah. um yeah. and they certainly are not well and i think like you know not to get too too saccharine about it but i think that that's the thing i always come back to most and appreciate most is that I think he understands the way the value of a child's response to something. And that's what people talk about a lot when they say, you know, that childlike wonder that is such a key part of his films, even the ones without children, you Mm -hmm. know, you go back to frankly jaws, you know, again, Indiana Jones, especially Jurassic park. I think that's a huge component of why Jurassic park works is that, you know, the childlike response is one of fear but also wonder and curiosity. Yeah. And that is so much, that's such a key part of his worldview in his movies is there's these things that are scary, but just because they're scary doesn't mean you shouldn't try to, to, you know, there's something magical about that too. And there's something about that that's inviting. And I think in this film, it's especially acute because the characters literally are children. So yeah. that is their response. And like you said, the story almost hangs on it because, you know, it's it's kind of a point in the movie that the adults don't know how to respond to this correctly. It takes the child to say, I'm going to reach out to this thing and create a connection with it rather than just run away in fear. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's this overarching thing. I think that's spot on, but it's this overarching theme uh, that, you know, I know you and I often drift to in movies that we like, but it's, you know, the concept of the other, the thing not like us and this, the alien, you know, what, who is the alien in the film? And I think one of the things I just kept coming to was that, you know, in the adult world, right, the alien is the the monster. It's the thing that looks different. It's the thing that's unknown. It's the thing that um, you know, any amount of life would teach us to run away from. And yet yeah. what, you know, one Spielberg does so well with tec- the technical side is anytime there are human beings, especially early in the film, especially the government figures, you know, their noises are yelling, crashing, tears from the mom, you know, people being upset. And and then the ET's noises are things like purring, right? And it's entirely not human. And yet which one is more alien to the children, which one is less understandable. Right. Um, and it's, it's the broken emotions of the parent. It's the, it's the absent father, right? Who's more alien to Elliot in the film? Is it his dad or is it ET? Which one's scarier? And, and I think it's just like a really cool thing that they do with that, which is when it comes to what is alien to us, I think he's trying to capture that as you get older, the things that should be alien to us, like violence or abandonment or fear um, or anger and aggression become normal. And what you find beautiful is that it's actually the openness, the things that the older people would call alien that lets you find the thing that's probably most like you, or at least more warm to you and open to you and, and human to you in some ways. So 
yeah, I don't know, I, I, that stuck with me this time around. So I think I'm pretty close to, I mean, I have more thoughts, but I'll save them for later. Uh, Do you have anything else that you wanted us to cover? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that really, and I'm sure I caught this as a kid, but because it's so in your face, but um, the topic of, I mean, obviously friendship is a central part of this and we don't need to spend too much time on that. But Can I give, wait, wait, can I interrupt? And can we give a shout out to the friends that they're like, hey, meet us over here on the bikes. Right. And first of all, they're like, cool. And then they get there. It's like, okay, alien, we're trying to get him home. There's cops chasing us. And they're just like, yeah, sign me up. I'm good. Yeah. Those, those are, are the, friends. Those are the friends, man. That's who those, you roll with. Yeah. But anyway, I think one of the things that really hit home, uh, it, and it's kind of a two-part thing that is really built into this friendship uh theme that runs throughout the movies is the the strength that he seems to hit the idea that you have to be willing to let something you love go you know um in order to truly love it in some ways um especially when letting it go ultimately allows it to you know the the hammer you in the head with it go home right whatever home is to get back to where it needs to be even if that means you essentially allowing it to leave your life or allowing it to be, to pass on. Um, yeah. We're always dancing around this thing of, you know, just because it ends doesn't mean it wasn't worth it is a big part of our human experience. Right. Yeah. And you know, whether it's a relationship or it's quite frankly, our lives itself, there's this recognition that, you know, just because it's over, it doesn't mean the journey or the adventure wasn't worth going on. In fact, that's like what made it so valuable. And Man, it just that last scene hammers that in such a yeah. beautiful way. I mean, I it, I cried both times I watched it. You know, the, yeah, the idea that there is no goodbye ultimately because you had the experience or you had the relationship or you had the connection, mm-hmm. um, and then they have the hug and the you know I'll be right here is obviously the classic line. Yeah, as he points to the kid's head, and you just wanna, you just wanna cry. Um, yeah, because I think absolutely. it captures that beauty of just like if you truly have the bond with this friend that you think you do, um, and if you truly love them more than yourself, which is what it's been building to as they try to sacrifice for each other and all that, then you have to let it go home, right? Yeah, and you're gonna have to say goodbye, and you're gonna have to live in that paradox of it it ends and yet it never actually does because that's what love and friendship is about, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I could talk about it all day again, but it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful theme of the movie that he just nails. Um, with he, a and, and, you know, I think a huge part of it, too, and I, we didn't talk about this when we were talking about Spielberg with this movie. Uh, we kind of hit at we hinted at it. But that thing about the broken home and, and the divorce, as is, it's actually a pretty it's pretty well known by now that a huge motivator of this movie and actually one of the ways that he first conceived of it uh, was that he obviously had a broken home, which was actually relatively uncommon when he was a kid. And I think the sixties it would have been. And uh, so his, he had an absent father figure from a divorce 
And part of his coping was creating an imaginary friend, an alien. Um, and I think that that with that in mind, first of all, thinking about that with that last scene made a hit a lot harder last time I was watching it because I didn't know that story. But thinking about that after reading that and then watching the movie again, I was like, oh, boy, this is pretty this this hits pretty heavy now, um, you know, thinking that this is part of this is Spielberg's own demons and own, you know, relationship with this with this idea of having something to help you through this tough time. But I think that also feeds right back into the theme because there's this element, I think, of recognizing where this thing has helped me cope with something. But that doesn't mean I need to hold on to it. And in fact, often it means I have to let it go. And and there's this element of, you know, this was maybe good for a season, but now I have to leave. But can, can I do that while still acknowledging the good that it has had in my life? And I don't know if that's too, too nuanced the reading of it. I think it's there. I think that there's this understanding, especially again, pulling into that, the idea of, of the origin of the story uh, as this thing to help cope with trauma. I think that's part of it is this level of, you know, the good effects aren't negated by having to move on. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah. arguably they're amplified. Um, yeah. yeah and it's, I, it's so powerful too. When you think about the sacrifice and the, the suffering really of the relationship in the movie. Um, you know, they obviously have a lot of really fun scenes where they're goofing with each other, but so much of the film is, is that trial and tribulation that they go through to get ET safe. And yeah. And there's almost a crushing disappointment where you're like, Oh, that all that work wasn't for me to get to a point where I get to hold on to him. Right. Ooh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, or where I get to hold on to this thing that has helped me or given me a distraction or gotten me through um, this trauma. Uh, there's just like this moment where it's, Oh, the whole point of the trial and tribulation is the heartbreak of letting it go. And yet that's what love and, and growth and life is. And, and there's a deep beauty in that, but man, yeah, you're just like, there's a part of you at the end. That's like, now I want to watch the movie where they just hang out for the rest of their lives. Right. Cause they finally yeah. got there. They finally made it. And the film isn't, that's not what the film's about. It's, no. You went through all that so you could say goodbye. And that's not meant to be a heartbreaking thing because you will always have that with you. Okay, so for this next section of the podcast, uh, we call it Talking Points. Mike and I have both prepared a series of essentially a little a little mini essay uh, just covering something about the movie that stuck out to us, something that you know maybe we hadn't appreciated before or that we just find really fascinating or interesting. I believe you're going first, right, Mike? Yeah, I am. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about uh, the concept of wonder in the film. Uh, and I think it's easy to watch E.T. and think that the whole film it's just about childhood wonder, which it is. I think that's the the avenue that it uses to talk about it. And there is something about childhood that often can keep us in a space of wonder. But I also think the film just has some really 
fascinating conversations to have about the importance of wonder in our lives and then the role it plays in our kind of like our humanity. Um, and, when, and I think one of the things that it, it hits home so well is that wonder is really like our willingness to experience everything as unknown and thus as deserving or as something that needs to be investigated. Uh, we, we use the word curiosity earlier, but I think it's a posture of just assuming that I don't know what it is that I'm looking at, but I'm curious enough to go find out and willing to move towards it, right? And I think what the film tries to argue is that life is at its fullest or life is um, most meaningful when we allow that wonder to one foster within us and to grow and to be fed, but also when we let it take us on the adventures that ultimately give our lives meaning. And I think the, the film does it in just some really interesting ways. You know, I think it shows us that wonder is really the thing that prevents the characters uh, from attacking the unknown when it shows up. You know, it's a willingness of each character, but especially of Elliot, to let what he doesn't understand prove him wrong about what it is. He doesn't approach this unknown thing with assumptions or projections of his own fears onto it. Um, rather, he very powerfully allows it to be what it is after that first impression. Because you remember the first encounter is terrifying, right? He's going out into the woods. He thinks it's a coyote or, or something or a fox. I can't remember. And he, when he sees it, it terrifies him because it's just so different. It's so alien. It's so out of what he understands uh, a creature to be. And yet it doesn't stop him, right? He has this sense of wonder and his curiosity kicks in and he does not see the other or the alien as being other because of it. Because he just because it doesn't have a bucket for what it is doesn't mean he excludes it as being potentially a friend, right? And I think that's the beauty of it. It allows him to see this thing that the adults throughout the film see as monstrous, as nothing more than a potential friend or companion or something like himself uh, to go on an adventure or a journey with. And I think it's Elliot's willingness uh, to have that wonder and that curiosity that allows him to know it as, as the film progresses and above all allows him to empathize with it. It opens him up to see connection to it and his own struggle with fear and not feeling like he's home uh, to see that in the creature or the alien that he eventually tries to help. And as he comes to see himself in it, he's able to extend love to it because of it. And I think you see this very literally at first. And then it gets more subtle. You know, it starts with the hilarious mirroring scene, right? Where he sees E.T. and they're kind of, uh, you know, waving their hands and doing various things of going through his toys um, and, and trying to communicate in this nonverbal way. And what you're doing is you're physically seeing him find himself in E.T. and E.T. doing the same back to him. And then it progresses to generosity, him sharing his toys with E.T., him teaching him how to play, him just wanting to share uh, these things he loves, like his his action figures from the Star Wars film or his favorite characters from some of his cartoons. But eventually, like I said, it becomes more and more subtle. It becomes the unseen bond that ultimately drives the film, which obviously the movie uses the psychic connection to talk about. He starts feeling what it feels. He starts experiencing what it feels. And it starts doing the same towards him. It's one of the great lines of the film when the government official asks, Elliot thinks it's thoughts, and the brother says, no, Elliot feels 
its feelings. It produces a real friendship with something other than itself, which becomes the heart of the movie. And I think ultimately that's what leads to the climax. The willingness to help each other find home again is the heart of the movie. But it also, this level of empathy that wonder allows him to find, this level of friendship that wonder allows him to grow, we're also reminded has a cost, right? There's a shared suffering, pain. It's the weakness and the illness that they feel uh, as they come closer and closer to their departing. But with it, they also find shared healing through self-sacrifice. The relationship becomes the willingness to risk for each other's care. The climactic point of the movie is that they are both willing to sacrifice their lives for the other. See, it gets to the biggest movement of the movie in my eyes. This moment where Elliot and E.T. come to understand themselves not as us and them, but as we. It's the journey of, of seeing each other as one, as finding union with one another. And that we mentality is just so profound. And I think it also, you, you know, you watch it spread throughout the film, right? The, the we mentality he they form together spreads to how Elliot responds to even more people and eventually to everything. The frogs that they liberate to keep their hearts beating, right? The friends that come in and they just want to be part of this journey. It's, it's intoxicating. It's attracting. It, it's good. And it draws in people to do something miraculous, right? And ultimately, the film lands on this point where that wonder and that curiosity and that willingness to be proven wrong and that willingness to let something be what it is in the present moment allows them to this point where they can respond that way to everything. And they can just find union and, and love and friendship, um, companionship, not with just one person or a few people, but with everything. And I think this is what drew me to this connection between wonder and empathy, right? I think it's just so cool. This deep union of empathy, this coming to see ourselves as we, is just the foundational building block of, of, of joy, of peace, of friendship that wonder produces. Again, it's the not already knowing the quote-unquote truth about something or someone. It's the willingness to let something truly impact and shake us and shape us without preconceived notions, to move beyond assumptions and let something unknown become known as it truly is. And I think what the movie also captures so well is that that is both beautiful, but it's also fundamentally dangerous. It can only be done with a dramatic vulnerability and letting ourselves be open to being wounded or wronged or above all at the end, loss, right? It can only be grown through a relationship that is risky, in which we put something on the line and it opens us to heartbreak, which is what we see at the end where Elliot has to say goodbye. He has to, because over this course of them becoming we, over this formation of this union, over this wonder that has led to empathy, that has led to this beautiful connection, he knows that he has to let E.T. go. Because it's what E.T. needs, and it's no longer just about him. And I think even as he does that, he finds that the beauty of wonder is that though it's gone, it's always with him, right? The friendship that it lets us form, and the experiences we gain when we open ourselves in this vulnerable, risky, dangerous, but beautiful way. And to close, I just want to sit with one last thought. 
which is the natural danger of losing wonder that the film seems to be so aware of. You see, when you look at the characters in the film, the older they get, the more that they live in human society, the more that they suffer wounds, trauma, divorce, heartbreak, you know, the human condition on this world, the less they all seem to be open to wonder and thus to empathy and thus to the deep bonds of friendship that make the adventure of this life so worthwhile. See, what you see in these characters is a loss of innocence. They all grow preconceived beliefs from their traumas about what these unknown things that they encounter will be, must be, ought to be, have to be, and then they respond accordingly, and it costs them. See, the inevitable pain of life jades us, and it takes us away from being able to see the miraculous and allowing it to just be, to experience as it is, to impact us in the moment. I think that's the beauty of it, right? You have this broken family, this dad who isn't here, the pain that comes with that loss, and what happens to the mother? Over and over again in the film, the beginning half, the mother can't even see the alien. She's so caught up in life and micromanaging and cleaning and trying to shuffle all this responsibility that she has because of her own heartbreak that she can't even notice when the alien's right behind her, when it's just around the corner, when it's trying to reach out to her at times. The danger of lost wonder of that innocence, that youth, is that we just miss the miraculous. We miss so much of, of these moments that could change us, that could impact us, that could give us meaning. And ultimately, I think what it reminds us of is that without that wonder, it leads us to miss the adventure of life altogether. This adventure of openness, relationship, empathy, becoming we, and finding that union that's at the heart of the film. So. I just think it's a, it's a masterclass in the reminder that wonder has to be the filter of our world and how we see people. And that when we do that, we're going to go on an adventure of life that is just so silly, stupid, hard, painful, scary, but ultimately meaningful and ultimately something that will bring us home. Yeah, man, I, I I love all of those points. I think um, I have a couple thoughts, if you don't mind, yeah. just building off of some of the stuff you were saying. Uh, you know, first thing is I'm kind of curious about this idea, thinking about the difference between the mom's response and the kid's response. Is there maybe one thing that that I drew from what you were saying and kind of was was th- kind of playing around with in my head? Is there maybe an element where, you know, the kids by having to go through this pain of this loss of of their father, does that in some way make them open, more open to looking for this other thing and and in a sense prep them for the wonder of what what E.T. has to show them? 
I, I'm kind of, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, is there any, do you think there's a reading in here of, you know, the, the pain of that thing and going through that almost makes for fertile ground for experiencing something incredible on the other side? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in terms of spirituality, the hardest jump that we have to make when it comes to growth of our consciousness is always to wonder at our own suffering as much as we wonder at our own graces and our own miracles, right? Um, I think a lot of us want to think that we're only called to have wonder towards the joys of our lives, right? The mountaintop experiences, the beauty. Um, But ultimately, I think what we're called to do as people who want to grow and mature and be and be healthier and more um, grounded people is we have to learn to wonder at the pain too, for exactly what you just said, because it's yeah. what cracks us open. It's what makes us search. It's, it's what makes us leave the village as the, it, it makes us, it creates a vulner. It, cre- it pre creates vulnerability. I think maybe you could say, yeah, or, when I, I or, think pre, it, or predisposes to vulnerability. Well, I don't even know if I would say that I would just say it has the potential for it. Um, yeah, because yeah. it also has the potential to go the way of hardening and the closing off. I mean, I think yeah. that's why, again, that's why we have to learn to wonder at suffering because our first response to suffering is actually to go the opposite way. Um, sure. To try to control it, to try to make it go away, to try to um, essentially do away with it and or to not yeah. look at it or deny it. And, and ultimately, and you know, growth well, is on the other side. Yeah. 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 Sorry to interrupt. Uh, you know, it's interesting because actually even going back to the whole relationship with the mother and this is now absolutely reaching, there's, I think no real support for this, but it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. I think, you know, there may even be an argument that she, because of, of almost because, you know, in the logic of the film, because she's an adult, she has, the coping mechanism for her can be kind of the illusion of control. And you can maybe make an argument that she, you know, as by way of coping for with this loneliness is almost trying to just exert more life control uh, over her life. And the, the beauty of being a kid is that they don't even have that illusion. They know they don't have control. And in a weird way, that's what makes them able to, more quickly find that wonder at pain all the it's in fact you know thinking about the scene with them uh almost every scene where they talk about their father which isn't too many but there's a few they always can only approach it with wonder in terms of i don't understand this and i can only muse at it and and I, i i can't even pretend to have some remedy for it um no, I but think you that actually, might be, and you yeah, actually see them at times groping for that control. You almost see the seeds of it um, and the danger of it. Like when they're trying to tell themselves, Oh, he'll be back. There'll be more of these. Right. Yeah. yeah. You almost feel them lying to themselves, denying it, denying the truth of it, which is, yeah, he might be, but so far the evidence we have is he's gone. Right. Yeah. And, and you're right. Cause it is, it's in one hand, it's, you see them painfully aware that they have no control over if their dad's ever coming back. And yet um, they still try to cope with that or try to think through how to cope with that or try to tell stories to cope with that 
Yeah. So it's it's so interesting. It's such a good choice to have children be at the heart of this because you see kids who are teetering on that edge of how are we going to respond moving forward after this trauma, right? Yeah. And that's ultimately even I think when you talk about the the healing of ET that he gives to Elliot on that heart level, I think that's the freedom. It's it's okay to still wonder, right? Uh, yeah. Because this one paid off. You've suffered. You went through hardship. You went through all these horrible things, but it still, it still had meaning and value, and it was good. And the journey yeah. it led you on was good, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's just obviously the exact opposite of what he's currently feeling with his father. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. It's 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 a very interesting choice to use children for this, but I think it's it's a good one. I think it's funny because a lot of people's response, or a response I've heard many times to why kids are included in movies there's a cynical thing of like sometimes movies feature kids because kids are theoretically more likely to want to see a movie with kids in it which by the way i don't know if that actually holds but that is a a traditional line of thinking i think this movie actually exists in the exact opposite sphere because um it actually justifies having kids in it Right. Yeah. I I think that this movie makes it incredibly, uh, you know, it's not just a decision for the sake of the marketing and it's not just a decision for the sake of, of this or that the decision to have kids is central to the story. Yeah. And uh, like you said, I think it's required because that it's, it's a huge theme of the movie is the way that they're responding to this as opposed to how an adult would, um, I totally, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I kept, I said it in the, in the monologue, but I just kept going back to every scene where the mom doesn't see the alien. I was just like, that's brilliant. Right. It's, there is the first extraterrestrial known to man in your living room. Um, and you miss it because unlike your kids, you're just so caught up in the pain of life to some degree or into that desire to try to control, I guess, the pain of life. And thus the the children are crucial. Like you said, it's not a plot device. It's not a, it's not a gimmick. It is, this is, (laughs) this is the, the kind of person you have to be to not miss something this profound. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally, uh, yeah, I totally agree. My other point is, or, or the other thing I was thinking of as you were talking, uh, it not a similar movie in a lot of ways, but a lot of what you were saying reminds me of Call Me By Your Name. Um, the uh, Specifically kind of the last scenes, which I guess there's no reason to spoil that if we're not talking about that movie. I'm if you sure haven't we'll seen do, it, we'll do that movie another time. I was going to say, we'll have to do it. It's one of my favorite movies, but in a very, in a very, very different context uh it it hits at the same idea and in fact it's it's the whole crux of the movie i think is that you know there's this danger to vulnerability there's this danger to intimacy and your response to that dictates a lot of how you'll be set up for you know being able to have those powerful relationships in life and being able to you know, have a healthy relationship with uh, even yourself, really. Um, 
yeah so i don't know it just made me think of it because it's such a it's so similar i think the way that they portray that like you said that danger of vulnerability um but danger and vulnerability that is still ultimately worth it is such a good idea and is such a critical part of, of this whole thing So I said this earlier, but I had two realizations watching E.T. this most recent time. The first was that this could be a really great silent film. In terms of just craft, rewatching it, it was so apparent what a masterpiece the whole movie was. You know, we talked about Spielberg's shot construction, his visual storytelling skill, and just the strength of the ability of the filmmaking in that you could watch the movie in silence and really not lose that much of what he's trying to convey to you. You know, I think about the adults being shot primarily neck down, the recurring motifs of the the keychain guy, the flowers representing E.T.'s life, the way that lights and shadows draw our eyes towards empty spaces and make us wonder what was there a second ago, the way that shot and reverse shot portray the wonder of the kids at E.T., take us on the journey of E.T. and Elliot coming to understand and even love each other. I just think the visual storytelling is on this incredible level. It's efficient, it's deep, it's refined. Essentially, everything you need to know is communicated through the visual medium. So that was the first realization I had on the most recent rewatch. The second, though, is maybe the opposite. I actually believe that the soundtrack is the single most successful element of the film. And to talk about that, I actually want to take us back real quick to 1981. And we need to talk about two people, obviously Steven Spielberg, who we've talked about a lot. But I think I also want to talk about John Williams, who we haven't talked about at all so far. In 1981, they're both in very interesting spots in their careers. Uh, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but there's this great line from the Popcorn Champs uh, article on E.T. This was written by Tom Brahan. He says, by 1983, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, twin boy wonder buddies, were together or jointly responsible for the five highest grossing films in history. Jaws, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and new entry E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Both of them were under 40. Within a few years, Lucas and Spielberg had essentially broken the box office, figuring out how to separate more Americans from their movie ticket money than any other director in history, end quote. You know, I think it's so incredible just that their work, uh, even though even at the time, some criticized it as juvenile or kind of escapism kind of pulp, it was already towering over the pop culture landscape. And, you know, Spielberg, with only seven years really into his filmmaking career, was already this Hollywood icon. But I think that it wasn't clear at that moment how long that dominance would last. I mean, you know, we said it earlier, but there's plenty of examples of directors who have this amazing burst of of activity and then kind of fall by the wayside. I think at this moment, it wasn't really known how long he could keep doing this 
and keep defying expectations. John Williams as well was being catapulted into his second decade as a household name. You know, Spielberg and Williams had by now cemented what was probably one of, if not the most fruitful professional relationship in any artistic medium that I can think of. Starting with Jaws, the two had become really creative partners. I say partners because while Spielberg as a director always has final say over his movies, obviously, he has said on multiple occasions that he very rarely, if ever, proposes changes to the ideas that Williams brings to him. It seems, in fact, that the two of them will kind of discuss a movie. Spielberg will will provide insight into what he's looking for. And then John Williams will, a few days later, come back with a score that exceeds anything Spielberg had expected. Now, in some ways, I think E.T. probably looked like a logical next movie uh, for Spielberg and for Williams. You know, Spielberg at this time, he's authoritatively an expert on igniting the imagination of kids. And obviously he's seasoned in sci-fi and adventure films. But in reality, I think the movie was a huge departure for Spielberg. You know, before his filmmaking rested on spectacle, on a sense of fun and escapism, E.T. is surprisingly a very, very small story. You know, the entirety of the movie takes place in suburban California over maybe three or four days. More than that, I think the movie isn't centered on any kind of escapism, any kind of sort of glee and just being able to enter into this other world for a while. I think the core of the movie is about as emotional as any drama you're ever going to see. And the drama isn't coming from a serial cartoon or a paperback, you know, beach read, but it's Spielberg's own childhood, his struggle to cope with a divided family, his retreat into the solace of imagination. And I think the result of this is that E.T. has to be this sort of strange amalgamation of aesthetic principles. On the one hand, it's a kid's movie but it can't be particularly silly or goofy. It has to have real emotional stakes. It's a sci-fi film, but it can't be otherworldly and it can't be techie and it can't be zap, bam, Star Wars fun. It's an action adventure movie, but it doesn't have that many action or adventure scenes. It's a fun summer popcorn movie, but if its emotional climax doesn't bring a certain amount of people to tears, then the movie probably didn't work. And what I think is cool is that, as his creative partner, making this contradictory machine run falls as much on John Williams as it does on Steven Spielberg. Williams himself said that he immediately knew there was this challenge of making people care and empathize for what he describes as this strange, rather odd-looking little creature. And the thing rewatching it, was I couldn't get over how much the score was actually steering my emotional response. Think about the film's opening minutes. There's no dialogue. Your cue for how to feel are the drifting, elusive opening notes that are describing to you these otherworldly visitors. One thing to notice is how quickly the score sets us up to view the world through the perspective of E.T. himself. Think of the yearning wonder of the strings as he explores the forest, the fear and apprehension of being discovered, the sadness and emptiness of being left behind, isolated, alone, and helpless. In essentially 10 minutes, 
John Williams has emotionally resonating with this diminutive alien, who at this point in the film we haven't even seen. And I don't think the soundtrack ever lets up. It builds with the story. It rises in intensity and emotion as Elliot and E.T. develop their friendship. It has these, it, it drives the fun moments like the frogs escaping. It drives the playfulness of scenes like the ho- Halloween uh, walking around and hiding E.T. from the mom. And it culminates arguably in the iconic shot of the bicycle flying in front of the moon. It culminates in this triumphant uh, you know, figure, this triumphant melody full of wonder and joy and embrace of the unknown. By the way, that melody, Williams has said, he loves and he loves the way that it's peppered into the movie before that point, but you never actually hear it in full until that moment. You only hear it frightfully, just a bit of it here or a bit of it there. And then finally, we have the ending, the last 15 minutes of the film. There's actually this amazing story about the production of the movie that I think illustrates how well Spielberg understood the importance of the music in this film. And honestly, rather than try to tell you about it, I'm just going to let the man himself talk for a few moments. This is a clip from a short featurette about the music of E.T. And the person you're going to be hearing from is John Williams himself. The end part of that film, beginning with the bicycle chase as the the little boys are trying to take E.T. back to the mothership and escape the police and get him safely back. About 10, maybe 15 minutes of very difficult music, all of it planned to catch all of these sync points, these points of accent. We have the bicycle achieving escape velocity and finally very sentimental dialogue at the end when E.T. says, I'll be right here, goodbye. And a fanfare when the spaceship goes up. And another fanfare when it turns left. And I was having a very difficult time with the orchestra. Trying, I would make maybe a good take for the first five, but maybe off the next two cues and then on further cues. It's a question of what feels right if, it, if the fiddle's sore enough. But I remember it so well, Stephen coming out to the podium and saying, I will take the f- film off the screen so you can just play the music with the orchestra and with its natural phrasing, the way it ebbs and flows in its own way, and then conform the, f- the film to what is the best musical performance of that thing. Very unusual. We usually have to slavishly phrase the music to the cuts of the film. When we had the musical performance we felt gave us the most lift and the most sense of exultation at the end of the film, Stephen then laid the music track against the film and made a few editorial adjustments to conform to the music. And I think part of the reason the end of the film has such a kind of operatic sense of completion, real emotional satisfaction as well as satisfaction from what we see, may be partly the result of this wedding of the musical accents with Stephen's film editing. So I'm left wondering, why did Spielberg do that? You know, this movie, I think, you could characterize as the height of his filmmaking powers. He's working on the climactic final moments of this incredibly ambitious film 
And as I said before, he's shown that his visual acuity is just on another level. So why at the end of the movie does he follow the instincts of his composer? You know, I, I was thinking about this and I think that what Spielberg knew was that the power of a good film score is in its ability to validate and amplify the emotions of the story. It's almost this magic trick, the way that a score like E.T. will change your entire perception of a film. You know, Williams, he's made great scores before this movie, and he would make great scores after, but in my opinion, E.T. is special because, like the movie itself, it's threading the needle between conflicting ideas. I think the score incorporates the fear of Jaws, the wonder of Star Wars, the adventure of Indiana Jones, and it lifts all of it to an emotional plane that I think none of those films even try to approach. You know, when I was a kid, we had this VCR player that would feed into this stereo receiver that would go to speakers. And very early on, I became a bit of a pirate because I learned that I could put a tape into the stereo receiver and press record and it would record the music coming from the VCR. I distinctly remember this was one of the first times I ever did that. I was so captured by the music of E.T., especially uh, the main theme, which plays as a piano over the end credits, that I would record it and just play it back constantly. And to be honest with you, I think that's my relationship with this movie. It's driven by the soundtrack. And I think what I was responding to was the emotions of it. And there's something really special about that, that before I could really put into words what I was feeling, the music of the movie took me to those feelings. And I don't think I can think of higher praise than that, that the soundtrack works on such a level that kids, adults, I think anyone can be affected by this in such a way that they don't necessarily understand what's happening. Yeah, so it actually really strikes me. I think, one, that, that was awesome. And I don't know, as someone who's not very musically inclined, it's it's a fascinating element of the film that, you know, I think I've always appreciated but never known in context or the story behind it. Um, but it does strike me, right? There's this, yeah. we've been spending all this time talking about wonder and vulnerability and the role it plays. And it's just profound to hear that the director behind the film basically took that approach to the unknown with such an important part of his film, right? Absolutely, yeah. And yet that becomes, like you were saying, one of the greatest success, successes of, of yeah, I guess this entire uh, film. So what what do you think the, the connection is between these things we've been talking about, about vulnerability, union, relationship, friendship, wonder, and that artistic pursuit? that made the music such a draw to you? Like what, what is that bond, right? Because there has to be something between art and these larger, headier themes we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, well, first of all, I think it's a great point that the filmmaking itself reflects that to a certain level. There has to be a, a willingness to jump into 
the completely unknown um, into something that on paper shouldn't work. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things is that as, as responsible adults, part of our lack of wonder is our unwillingness to take a risk like, you know, like this movie, frankly. Um, in terms of the, the way that the music relates to this vulnerability, I think that part of the, the success of the film is the way that the musical journey it creates is one that develops over the film. So I, I kind of hinted at it in the, in the essay, but the main theme, the, the flying theme uh, of, of E.T., comes up a few times in the movie but just like their relationship has to progress and and deepen the theme itself starts out in fits and bursts in fact williams even talks about it in that documentary that it won't actually play with the correct harmony behind it so it sounds a little bit off it sounds a little bit frightful but you're you're starting to associate with it you're starting to connect to it and that mirrors their relationship right Mm. and only when they reach this point of total trust in each other and total connection relational connection does the film reach this point of overwhelming kind of joy and triumph and wonder and excitement and the soundtrack will mirror that and yeah. it will go to that same place. And it's been taking you on that journey. And again, I think one of the cool things is it takes you on that journey without you realizing it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think that even goes and, and the same thing is true for the ending. You know, I think the cue of the music being the driving force of the editing is again, it, it's worth mentioning. He says it in that clip, but it's very unusual. And yeah, absolutely. I think that it gets the idea of the the music is is driving the emotions. It's again kind of creating them and validating them. And by the end, you are so locked in with the thematic compositions he's made that just hearing the themes in a different context with different kinds of harmonic structures behind them lifts you into the emotions of the film i think it's just it's a towering achievement um the way that the music interplays with the film in this particular movie yeah absolutely i mean it's just it's form and function intertwined you know and there's something unbelievably vulnerable about that that i would never do if i was a filmmaker you know uh, to turn over something so crucial and say, uh, I trust you to see what I'm not seeing um, and let me work from you, you know, at yeah. the most important point of the film. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's stunning. It's a stunning act of believing the themes that you're preaching in the film. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really know what to say, but it's it, it's not the same movie without it. You know, it's it just isn't. Um, and... Yeah, and I think there's just a there's an awe to that for me that yeah. I think I think allows me to wonder myself about where in my own artistic pursuits or my own worldview or anything, really parts of myself am I 
am I truly needing to turn over the keys and say, what do you see? Uh, sure. How can I make music here? How can I make this better? Right. Yeah. Um, well, actually, yeah, and you know, what's great is it gets to, it gets to the thing you were talking about, which is the, the danger of vulnerability and closeness. It's a moment of creative vulnerability, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That he's, that he's, you know, able to say, you know, we have this relationship, we have this partnership. I trust you so much that I'm handing over control of this to you. Uh, and again, like, I think part of the thing that makes it even more remarkable is that it's not as though Spielberg is unable to do this, right? This is some, it's not as though he's bad at this and is like, okay, you're good. Let me hand it to you. As he proves in this movie itself, he's a master at this moment. Yeah. He's completely in control of, or, or I should say his control over the camera and over the shots and the visual strength of the film is so strong that I think that makes it even more remarkable that his instinct was to let go. And his yeah. instinct was at that point for that moment to say, you know, I think someone else may have a better sense of how this should be paced. I'm going to leave it to him. And yeah, man. It's in, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a remarkable achievement, I think. Awesome, Mike. Well, uh, the way we end this podcast is we both have prepared a final question for the other person. Uh, something just to think about the nature of how the movie impacts our lives, of how maybe we can see uh, you know, some of the themes or some of the ideas come up in just the way that we go about our daily lives. Um, you know, I'm actually, I, I decided to pivot a little bit based on a point you raised right at the end uh, in, when we were talking about the, the music of the film. Mike, I'm, I'm kind of curious. What do you think, what, or I should say, how can you approach uh, creative vulnerability in your life in general. And, and what I'm really thinking of is, you know, the way that we sometimes have these things that we feel like we have capability in and control in. How do you think you are able to let go of your control over things that you feel accomplished and you feel competent in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think, you know, I guess, I guess I'll just go with my role right now as a pastor, right. As a teaching pastor who pretty much on a weekly basis has to craft a, you know, a, a sermon, um, a Ted talk of sorts, right. Um, that's engaging, that teaches, that, you know, draws people in that impacts. And, and in terms of man, in terms of surrendering that control, you know, on one hand, I think I've learned that, through um, experience, I think there's something that all artistic people go through, which is that um, you write what you think is the masterpiece of your artistic work. And then, uh, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. But then you'll write one that you don't, you don't think 
really hits home or you don't love it or whatever else. And it's the only thing people remember, right? Yeah. It sticks into people. It, it changes people. They respond. And, and there's almost this moment where it's, you know, at the end of the day, my pursuit of artistic or creativity or whatever you want to say um, has to have like a, a dual focus. And the first is that I can't control anything once I let it go. Right. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, as I do the work, the process of forming it, that's where my joy needs to come from um, is in the, the pursuit and the the wrestling with and and in that part of it, which I should be. Well, I'll come back to that, bringing people in. But but at the the other side of that is once you get to the point where the process is over and you release it, um, it's the response. Right. It's allowing mm-hmm. the response to be what it is. It's allowing other people to get what they can out of it. And and there's an act of surrender there immediately, which it's not my job ultimately to make you get what I want you to get out of it. Right. Yeah. So I think in some practical ways that that duality produces kind of two big things. One is find deep joy in the process, um, surrender the results so you can enjoy the actual part you control, which is the creation of it and the mm-hmm. joy of creativity and all that. So becoming process oriented. But the other side of it is after you're done learning to seek out um, feedback. And I say feedback, not yeah. criticism, because criticism is largely useless. It's almost always going to be, um, at least when I say in the critic kind of way, it's almost always going to be someone else's response to your work. And it has nothing to do with um, your control. But feedback is the invitation to be vulnerable, to say, I made this, I'm proud of it, but I think it could be better. What do you see in it? What do you think yeah. could have been better? And obviously, it's a collaboration. What sh- what do I need to let go of and let you create instead of me? You know? Yeah. So I think that process orientation it followed by allowing people who you trust, who you know, who you, who you believe bring wisdom to speak honestly and openly in a feedback that you take to heart. Right. I think yeah. it's a power, those are two powerful things that something like his work with the music just makes me think of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's, you know, to, to build on one thing you said too, a little bit, there's almost maybe a question of when do you want to, or how long do you want to pretend to have control over the thing you've created? I think sometimes some people pretend to have that control in perpetuity, but will will go to their graves thinking ultimately this is my thing. And I think, you know, almost everyone probably has to come to terms with that at some point with the things that they make. And again, I think that the, the beautiful, incredible thing is that in the midst of creating it, there was a letting go here. And I think if, if you can do that, even as you're making something, even as you're pouring yourself into something, if you can simultaneously say, yeah, but ultimately I, I don't control this. That's when something really special can happen. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. What you got? Well, John, uh, I guess the question I have will be based on wonder. And that is, how do you foster a sense of wonder? And where do you feel like you have lost your sense of wonder the most? Pretty light questions here. Huh? No, I'm just kidding. Mm. I think, you know, the first question is a lot easier. I think fostering a sense of wonder, in a sense, doesn't have to be 
it can be very simple, but not necessarily easy. I think it's, it's, it's the mental stance of openness. And even more than that, it's the driving curiosity to create or to find out new and different things that will surprise you. I think that, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm stealing this from someone, but I once heard the idea that it's not that you become less one full of wonder and curiosity as you get older. It's that as you're younger, everything is new. And so the surprise that drives that wonder and that curiosity is just a a part of your everyday life because every day you're encountering things that you don't understand. And the only reason why we lose that, I think, is because we grow very used to those things and we never have to develop the skill of seeking out different ideas and different things because as a kid, we were used to them simply coming to us automatically because again, everything is new. So I guess that kind of, in a sense that gets at both questions. I think the thing that I lose is the thing or the thing that I've lost is the thing that everyone loses, which is, you know, encountering that newness on a daily basis. And part of that, I think, or or a huge part of that isn't necessarily anyone's, it's not my fault. It's just the reality of getting older. I think the only, the only, you know, thing that you can do to abate that is conscious, make a conscious effort to find the new and to find the, the things that will still surprise you. And this is actually a very acute problem for me. Uh, You know, I, I actually joke all the time that I am, I am chronically uh, uninspired to go to new things. And in fact, part of the motivation of why I like talking about movies and why I really uh, can sink my teeth into stuff like this is because I don't like seeing new movies. I don't like watching things I haven't watched. I don't like, you know, um, going, yeah, just in general encounter listening to music I haven't listened to. I think because there's something very safe about what you already know. It's kind of what we were saying earlier. There's a danger to that encountering that new thing. And for me, the danger is simply that, you know, on one level, it's just that, well, maybe it won't be good, but on a deeper level, it's also that, well, you know, I don't know how it will affect me. There's a, there's a danger in not knowing how this will affect me. So I, I think it's as simple as, you know, making that conscious effort to engage with newness and to engage with things that are different and are outside of my past experience. And funnily enough, I think the curiosity and wonder follow as a consequence of that rather than being a precursor. I think people get that wrong. They think I need the curiosity and the wonder to be someone who approaches newness as in a, on a regular basis. But I kind of think it's the opposite that if I engage commonly with things that I don't expect and I do it with an open stance, curiosity and wonder will follow from that.
Mm. No, that's good. Does that answer your yeah. question? Yeah, absolutely. That's spot on. Great. Well, uh, Mike, I've enjoyed, I've loved talking about ET with you. Do you have anything you still want us to cover or? No, I mean, man, what a weird movie. Let's just, what a real. weird movie. Yeah. It shouldn't work. I think that was yeah. the thing I kept going back to is I was, I, I kept thinking this is, this movie is a risk. It's hard to know. It's hard to realize that in the, you know, having been born after it was an um, unbelievably successful movie. But when you really get down to it, uh, it was a huge risk, you know? Yeah. Man, did it pay off? It paid off. He, you know, he did all right. I think that Spielberg guy. Yeah, he's onto something. He's onto something. Okay, Mike, uh, again, I really appreciate talking about E.T. with you. What are we talking about next time? We are talking about In Bruges, one of my favorite movies. One of mine, too, even though I, I have a much shorter relationship. I only saw it because uh, you told me about it probably four or five years ago, I think. Um, so it'll be, you know what? Very similar to E.T., very childlike and full of wonder yeah, and joy. A little bit more violence, but mostly the same medical. Well, well. Not, and only know. a couple more midgets. So Only getting shot spoilers i guess um yeah what a what a trip great movie well mike thanks again uh we'll see you guys next time see you guys then